This text is for Reign of Christ Sunday, which is today, the last Sunday of the church year. Next week we'll have the first Sunday of Advent, begin a new church year. And so this was the gospel text assigned for this particular Sunday. It's one we most often hear at the time that we celebrate uh, the time of the resurrection and go through Holy Week leading up to it. But it is for this particular purpose, the reign of Christ, that it is now in our lectionary. When the words truth appeared in that text, I thought of a show that went back even before I was born called Truth or Consequences. It was a zany television show that ran when I was growing up, had different leaders, Bob Barker at one time. The contestants were asked crazy questions, and if they could not answer, they would have certain consequences. Some stunt to perform, something to do, but it was all in good fun, and people were willing to do that. Bob Barker would say, may all your consequences be happy ones. But not all consequences are happy. And seriously, we all seek to know what the truth is about life, about the world, about God. And we know there are consequences when we fail to know or respond to the truth that is before us. In our text today, it says, For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus came into the world to testify to the truth. That's what Jesus does. And if we belong to that truth, we listen to his voice. That is what we do. It sounds simple, but it is confounding in many ways. Elsewhere in the Gospel of John, Pontius Pilate says, what is truth? And we also know from the Gospels that uh, the truth will set us free. But it is still confounding to know what is the truth and to know how to follow it. To what does Jesus testify? To what do we respond by listening to his voice? In our culture, we are bombarded by words, thoughts, ideas, images. Phrases like fake news have become current. There's a lot of talk about what is fake and what is real, what is false and what is true. I went to the game yesterday with my son Jimmy. He's here from California for Thanksgiving. He always tends to come home on the Thanksgiving when Ohio State's playing at home. I don't know how that works, but... But basically, we had a wonderful time together throughout the day. And like all of his generation, he's very tuned into the Internet and was looking at things that were being posted, either uh, tweets that were coming out or emails, things that were about the game and about people's response, the participants, the coaches, etc. There was something there that was attributed to the quarterback for Ohio State, Dwayne Haskins, which just didn't seem right. It didn't sound like something he would have said, particularly after the game. And so Jimmy looked, showed it to me, and he said, really what this is, is this is fake news. This is a quote that was made up about Dwayne Haskins, uh, the words that were put into his mouth, and it was attributed to a, to a news source which uh, was uh, credible, but it really wasn't 
that source that was the source of this story. It was someone else who was, in a sense, imitating that news source. That, well, he explained to me, is what really fake news is about. I never really kind of understood it exactly. But he said people often retweet or email something they've heard on the Internet without checking the credibility, and it just keeps going on and on, even though it has no real truth or validity. So it's really important that we look to what is true to actually look to see what is credible. Now, there are many disputes over what is true. We have arguments over politics, religion. At our family gatherings on Wednesday night and on Thursday, one of my cousins said, oh, let's not talk about politics. And we all know about those Thanksgiving dinners or those times when people get into conflict. In fact, I remember growing up when our grandfather would say to us, don't argue about politics and religion. And he probably was right as a way to avoid unnecessary controversy or stress or acrimony. But aren't politics and religion important? Aren't they about what is true, what is real, what is actual? There are other things in our lives that are important, our family, our work, our friends, our recreation, the natural world, the life of the mind, becoming, growing, becoming more fully the people God created us to be. But becoming that involves discernment, discernment of God's spirit and will for our lives. And that involves religion and how we govern ourselves and relate to one another in the body politic. <clears throat> there are no easy answers. It may bring us in conflict with religious and political authorities in our day. Our model is Jesus himself. Our model is Jesus who, in his ministry, his life, had conflict with political authorities and religious authorities. The text comes from the Gospel of John. As I said, it's from the lectionary for this particular Sunday. And as Reign of Christ Sunday, it talks about the Jews, in quote. It talks about the Jews as being the opponents of Jesus and also raises the question whether he is, in fact, king of the Jews, which would, in fact, be an important, important distinction at that time. Herod the Great was king of the Jews, and, of course, his kingdom had gone on to his heirs, had been subdivided, if you will. But the kings that ruled were really ruling as client kings under the authority of the emperor at the sufferance of the emperor of Rome. And it was only the authorities in the political sense who had the power of capital crimes to invoke capital punishment, to put someone to death for a crime. So before we look at the political implications, we need to say something about the Gospel of John. This is called the fourth gospel. It's the last one that was written in the canon. It was laid in the first century of the Common Era. After the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which they're called synoptics because they're read together and they have similarities and common sources. In those gospels, Jesus' opponents are referred to as the scribes who were the experts in the law as the Pharisees who are presented as legalistic, presented as or portrayed as hypocritical, people who invoke the letter rather than the spirit of the law. These Pharisees also believed in an afterlife. 
Then there were the Sadducees, leaders of the temple cult in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, leaders in the community. What's interesting is they were different from the Pharisees in that they did not believe in an afterlife. But all of them were Jews, as Jesus and his disciples were all Jews. So when John's gospel says something that refers to the opponents throughout as the Jews, it's as if the whole Jewish community opposed Jesus and sought his death. And that's how we hear it as it comes down to us. In a sense, the gospel itself is infected with a bit of what anti-Semitism, which has come through our culture to this day. We often read these texts unwittingly, not realizing how this has affected the church and later readers. I had the privilege of visiting Israel twice, much as our group that just returned from Israel when my wife and daughter attended with Julie and Glenn Miles to a, a tour of that part of the world. We not only went on a trip one time, but then I helped to lead a trip. My first trip when I went, I was in the care of a Palestinian Christian guide. And our second trip was an Israeli guide. So it was interesting to have those two perspectives on our tour of the Holy Land. Wayne Rickert was the leader of the trip along with myself. And I remember well, our guide was named Ayel Aleph. The Israeli guide was a former paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, one who tried very hard to let us see as much as we could in that time we were in Israel. But one thing I'll remember about Ayel, not only was he one who led us through many places, but I was at the pool of Bethsaida, which in the text is a place where Jesus healed, and he healed on the Sabbath, and the scribes and the Pharisees opposed this or certainly questioned or criticized what he was doing because he was violating the Sabbath. And when I read from the Gospel of John that story, Ayel, when I said the Jews, as the text that we read today says, Ayel said, some Jews, some Jews. And he was quite insistent on this. And his, of course, his perspective was correct. Somehow John's text has implicated all in opposition to Jesus, when all of them were Jews, including Jesus and his disciples. And so, in a sense, the Gospel of John has been, in, in a sense, a way that this has been transmitted to us through the culture and through the church, through the ages. The language and the teachings of Christ through the ages have been infected by anti-Semitism. I remember Father John Powell, who was a very popular spiritual writer and speaker in the 1970s. He told a story of when he was a boy, and the young boy he was friends with, who was Jewish, was beaten up. And the boy remembered the epithet, Christ killer, because he was a Jew. Constantine's Sword by James Carroll talks about the long history of European anti-Semitism. I recently talked with a Jewish man who wants to make a presentation here um, on biblical archaeology, and he was saying that when he went to a synagogue in France, that that synagogue really was almost like an armed fortress, that it, that it had um, all sorts of windows that were darkened, they had guards on the outside, and there were all sorts of security measures taking place simply in their house of worship. 
Of course, we all know the long history of anti-Semitism in Europe ended up in the Holocaust. And the churches, in a sense, were implicated in this by, in a sense, creating a culture that oftentimes didn't recognize the Jewish roots of our faith, of our scriptures themselves. Churches that would not read from the Hebrew scriptures, only from the New Testament. That, in a sense, is the Martianism, which was a heresy in the first century that tried to eliminate the Old Testament from the New. And so, a lot of that created a climate which helped to transmit the virulent anti-Semitism that later came to fruition. And we look at not just to Europe. I remember growing up here in this community, and I remember very well the very few Jewish people I encountered, the young people that I encountered in elementary school, there somehow was this feeling, this picked up this feeling of antagonism or something about being different without really understanding much as a young person. I remember in sixth grade in our elementary school, there was a debate that was uh, between two students and it was on capital punishment. And one was a good friend of mine, and another was a person who we had just had joined the school from the Jewish community. And when they came to the debate, the person who prepared who was Jewish was very well prepared. He had done his research. He had books and citations or whatnot. And my friend actually debated him but had forgotten about the debate and not done any preparation at all. But I remember distinctly his making an emotional appeal about this, this issue. And that when the kids all voted, they voted for, for him. And I remember consciously thinking in sixth grade, there's something not right about this because this wasn't decided on the merits at all of the debate. So there was something in our culture at that time. Of course, we know about restrictive covenants and things of that nature. When I went to Ohio State Law School, uh, I recognized that I, I did not have many Jewish uh, neighbors when I was here on the west side. And I met a friend named uh, Albert Liner, who he and his, his parents had actually gone to Ohio State at the same time with my parents, and they knew one another. And Al grew up at Eastmore, grew up at Eastmore School. Um, and he told me that later he never thought that Jews could move west of High Street here in Columbus. And that was really the feeling that you were not welcome. Of course, if you've watched any of the shows about Columbus neighborhoods on WSU, which were really quite well done, you know that issues both on the east and the west side involve some discrimination against religious or ethnic groups. In this part of the, the city, Italians and Catholics weren't well received. And of course, there were restrictive covenants in the... Um, uh, deeds to properties. They were no longer enforceable after the Civil Rights Act. The Supreme Court said they were not enforceable, but they restricted who could move into the community, and these restrictions were based on religion and, and ethnicity. So there was discrimination and anti-Semitism in our community when I was growing up, and certainly as we've confronted this much of it in our culture today, even though we thought perhaps we had gotten beyond much of that. And of course, when we had the synagogue in Pittsburgh where there was the attack by a strongly anti-Semitic person, 
um, it begins to realize that we begin to realize that it infects our political environment and that some people will go off the deep end. Of course, we saw this with the violence at Emmanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina as well. Someone bound to an idea that discriminates against another group somehow goes off and takes, takes vengeance upon that group. So what was the truth behind the encounter with Jesus and Pilate? Jesus had run into opposition from both political and religious authorities in Jerusalem, and he had a wide following. And while the text takes pains to say that he did not claim political authority as a king, that his kingdom was not of this world but of the next, if you will, uh, he was still perceived as a threat by the religious establishment and by the political establishment. And so who crucified Jesus? John Dominic Crossan asked that. Who killed Jesus? And in that book and subsequent writings, he made it clear that it's the Romans who had the power to execute to, to bring capital punishment. Indeed, Crossan in many of his works goes on to say that if the earliest proclamation of the church is that Jesus is Lord, the implication clearly is that Caesar is not the Lord. And that brings clear conflict between the early church and the political authorities and also at the time of Jesus as well. But the text that we read today is really there to show something different for us on this Reign of Christ Sunday. In the text, Jesus is brought before Pilate to be examined, but Jesus has turned the tables. He has put Pilate and Pilate's kingdom under scrutiny. He has examined him. And there's a shifting of power in the world at this time between Caesar's kingdom and God's kingdom, God's kingdom enter in breaking into the world. In our own day, the claims of Jesus do bring us in conflict at times with the political authorities or the authority, religious authorities of our time. And while we may disagree with one another on many things, it is true that to follow Jesus in no way would implicate ethnic and religious hatred or discrimination or violence, and that we have to recognize that our texts and some of our actions through the centuries have contributed to this and created a culture that where that is still something that infects our culture. One would not be a follower of Jesus if, if one believed in discrimination and following, and yet we have done that in our times. The world of ethnic and religious strife and violence is not just in our communities, but around the world, the divisions among people. But this is not God's kingdom. It is the kingdom of the world. Jesus came to testify to the truth. And that truth has consequences. The truth is that all people, all people of all faiths and non-faith, our beloved children of God, are within God's kingdom, are made in God's image. Each of us is loved. Each of us is loved as if there were only one of us to love. And indeed, that is what the consequences of the truth is and the consequences are going to continue to be in our world to try to change and for us to try to change those things that are not from God but are from somewhere else. So let us continue to be people of faith, 
people who continue to seek ways to bring all of us together, not divide us, not to separate one from another. Let us pray. Loving and gracious God, we give thanks. We give thanks for your word, and we give thanks for discernment in your word to know those things that have led us astray and to help us to become more fully the people you want us to be, more fully your community, your kingdom in this world. Amen.